Here's Andy Tully from Nucleus to discuss with me a long-term savings commission and how we fix some of the problems bedeviling the UK's long-term savings system. My, my, my notes for today just said commission and then I had this attack of alarm it's like we're going back to pre-RDR but we're not talking about that sort of commission are we so, so I was talking to an IFA last week who was just clearly quite disgruntled still that RDR was a thing it's like oh, life was just it's 10 years ago now and more so, so he should have got over it by now well know? apparently <laughs> apparently not he's probably still cross about Brexit as well or at it so you know it'll take a little bit longer for that one to play through as well but I mean I thought going off topic entirely for a moment you know but I think it's related I thought Sheldon Mills' speech on consumer duty this week was quite interesting and the stuff the FCA put out on that and the letter they sent out to a bunch of IFAs asking some pretty pointed questions about their recurring income and the services they're providing for that. And, you know, in that respect, I think RDR is still playing through and it feels like they are just slowly ratcheting the the screws down on this one now. I think so. It's one of those ones that you've, always felt is coming at some point there would always be a focus on on advisors ongoing fees and mm. it's probably taken a little bit longer than i would have expected uh, partly because you know it's still percentage based as opposed to monetary amounts mm. and so so at some point there might be some sort of focus on that and you know and the same monetary amounts pretty much for every individual yeah and then the whole bit about evidencing what people are doing for that and i think for most advisors they're doing plenty evidencing it might be a a slightly different point of view but but i guess there's still some there might still be some older people out there who might be sat in a pool with profits fund and never move year to year and income stays exactly the same year to year and and so there might be a little bit more scrutiny on something like that if you can't evidence that you know, fund switches aren't taking place or aren't being looked at and income's not being looked at, it's it's gonna what what's all the other things you're doing to earn your money. So what yeah, well, one of my questions on that was if you've got a client on the books and let's say you write to the client and say, Hey Andy, it's time we did a review. I need to check what's changed in your life and we'll review your investments and and Andy doesn't write back and then so what do you do? Because Andy's still a client on your books and you're receiving income from the product for the service you're providing to Andy and you're trying to provide Andy with the service, but Andy's not responding. Do you then go and switch the income stream off? Do you do you write to Andy and say, well, I'm sorry, but if we can't talk, I can't keep taking the income, and that means you can't be a client of mine anymore? Where do you go with that? Well, it's difficult. I, I think so. I think one fundamental point is it's not just the face-to-face meeting. So advisors do a lot more than the face-to-face meeting. Mm. So I'd argue. So it's not just not just that. But I appreciate what you're saying. It is partly that. I think you can still do things. So you can still write to people, and you can still give them information. But I accept you would ideally be wanting a two-way discussion of, mm-hmm. of some form, which which is an individual saying, you know, lots of things have happened to me in the last year, or, or not, as the case may be. But yeah, I think it's a difficult one. I think if it's one year, you can, but if that's six years down the line and you've never had any interaction with that client, I think it becomes more more fundamental, doesn't it? So 
yeah, I can cover some some sort of strategy and play for that, whatever it happens to be, makes sense. I'm not absolutely sure what that strategy is, but, but <laughs> I'm sure IFA's people right, and me will have. Do write in and tell us. Yeah. So I mean, I I had I had dinner earlier this week with a, with a friend who's ex FCA, relatively recently ex FCA. And he was sort of rolling his eyes a bit at this latest push from the FCA on the, the recurring income saying, yeah, you know, I've been, I've been trying to get this one over the line for years. It's not like we didn't know about it. It's just, I guess the eye of Sauron has finally sort of turned in that direction. I don't know whether they had bandwidth issues and resource issues and team issues in terms of just the personnel they could throw at it. But this one clearly so. and, came to and, the top of the pile. Yeah, and I guess they've been through, you know, they've kind of looked at workplace pensions and George is there and they've looked at providers and platforms to some degree and, and then they've looked at investment managers to some degree. So so, so as you kind of go through all the different bits of the chain, I guess, advisors at some point will pop up. Guys, it's your turn this week. Yep. <laughs> anyway, look, we, we does not, well, we sort of, it was a, quite a digression I'm st- triggered by one, one word, a commission. So, uh, but look, the, the starting point on this was you wrote an open letter to Paul Maynard and I think to his shadow as well, to Jill Furness. Yes, and, and probably quite a wide range. So we tried to write to all the major political parties and across pensions spokespeople, but also kind of treasury spokespeople, because obviously treasury are key in all of this mm. as well. So both treasury on the government side and on the shadow side as well. And the story was, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but basically you were saying, look, there's lots of things that are broken here. We need we need a commission. Is it a long-term savings commission? Is that, is, that, is that a fair summary of the gist of it? That, yes, that's a fair summary. So the kind of driver from our perspective is we did a large piece of consumer research last year, which, we, which we've spoken about before, but Retirement mm. Confidence Index. So we spoke to a couple of thousand people over age 50, and we talked about the confidence levels and things like that. But a key area that was highlighted within the research was a desire for pension savers primarily, but maybe wider than pensions, but a lot of pension savers to have trust in in the long-term savings market and have a stable tax and and policy environment. And and pensions in particular, but also long, you know, ISAs and things like that. It's we're asking people to to put money away for a, a long period in time. So they do need to have trust in, in where it's going and what people are doing with that money. And and part of that is what the government are doing. And if we look over you know many, many years, over various different governments, there's been constant changes and tinkering to the system on, on an ongoing basis. And, and what people told us was that negatively affects their confidence and it deters them from engaging so that was really a good driver for us to write and say, we believe taking at least some of these things outside the political environment into an independent commission and getting them to make recommendations for you know future change would be beneficial. Okay, that that all makes sense, and you know. Full disclosure, I I did some similar but different research myself towards the end of last year, and the conclusion I came to was, oh, look, this is all a bit of a mess. What we really need is a long-term savings commission to review all this kind of stuff and come up with some depoliticized 
sort of long-term thinking on this. So we're kind of on the same page on this, but I want to play devil's advocate for a moment because once you've climbed the greasy pole to a ministerial position, particularly for someone like the Treasury, the last thing you're going to do is relinquish control of the levers of power and say, ah, oh, you know, I tell you, we'll just get we'll just get some unelected pension commission body or long-term savings commission body to tell us what to do. And my mind goes back to the coalition years, particularly where the government of the time post-2010 would argue, you know, and people would dispute their conclusions, but they would argue, look, we're in a financial crisis, we've got to make lots of radical cuts to government spending, so we have to keep trimming, oh, look, we've got to trim some more, look, we've got to trim some more, so we saw all those cuts to the lifetime and annual allowance and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, that's an example of where a government said, look, we need, we need to be able to make decisions on the hoof, on the fly, you know, in response to conditions, so why would we give all that up to a commission, Andy? So, so yes, from a political point, I, I absolutely see that. And, and obviously, what we're not talking about tax policy here. We're talking about long-term savings policy, and I think there's, there's a difference there. So, so a government of the day would always have control of tax and, and those levers. However, I think when we're talking about more fundamental changes to the pension tax system, so, so not necessarily income tax and things like that, but to pension tax system and the ISA system and, and LISAs and all those kind of things, I think we can't just be looking at next year or two years. We need to be looking at more fundamental 15, 20, 30, 40 years' time. Yeah, no, I was something else that came out this week was uh, Labour reaffirming their commitment to the triple lock as we approach the next general election. And that may be a good policy, but also it feels like these political parties are, are sort of trapped in this death lock where they can't, neither of them, no, none of them, I mean, there are more than two, so I shouldn't say neither of them, uh, but none of them feel able to step away from this triple lock commitment as they approach an election, yes. because it's a guarantee. And, and certainly none of them want to be the first to do so. Indeed, uh, right. Uh, and right. certainly not the first to do so just coming up to an election when it affects you know, a part of the electorate who are, who are potentially quite powerful. So, so so, I think it's things like that that would certainly benefit from being external. And we obviously, we've got one major thing that we can look back on that, and that was auto-enrollment. Mm. And auto-enrollment was driven by an independent commission back, back in the day of 20 years ago or, or so. And it had cross-party support, and it continues to have cross-party support. And and it's been a success. So, so that obviously doesn't mean everything that an independence commission would be a success. But we've got some evidence that it has worked and it has brought consistency. And auto-enrollment, again, it, we've not faced quite the same tweaks and things like that to it on a regular basis. It, it's largely was looked at in 2005. It was implemented in 20, you know, 2012. And, and it was largely you know, carried through. And then there was a review in 2017. And obviously, we would like to now see some of the minor changes around that that will benefit people. But but largely, it's been a fairly stable policy, which is reasonably unusual in our market. Yeah. And I think going back to, to the time, 2004 to 2006, I think it was that the Turner Commission was doing its work. There are two aspects to that that I think are worth keeping in mind. One was they had pretty strong buy-in from Downing Street. So they had that air cover, you know, that, that 
they had a mandate from the top of government. This wasn't something happening away at the periphery of government. This this was pretty central to government's thinking. And they, and whilst Gordon Brown, who was then Chancellor, didn't accept and adopt all of their recommendations, things like, you know, one of them was a, there should be a continuing commission after we finished our work. And that one fell by the wayside. But but that air cover from top of government, I think, was an important element of the equation, as was the fact, and I think, I don't think it's unfair to say that the opposition was still in some disarray at the time. There was nothing to be gained from for the opposition in not going along with the commission and the consensus that was formed by the commission. And I think that political context is perhaps relevant. That, I mean, look look at the idiocy that was going on with the votes in the parliament last night over Gaza, right? So that tribal factionalism that can sully politics wasn't a consideration at the time of the Turner Commission. And I think the shadow pensions minister with as Nigel Watson at the time, and he was quite happy to sign up to the consensus on it. I think it was Nigel. I think that's part of it. But it does come back to a commission can give a minister and perhaps the opposition, air cover to carry through things which would otherwise demand substantial political capital. And in that respect, I see it as an enabler and a facilitator for a minister rather than something that takes power away from them. And and I think that's absolutely a fair fair point. But equally, hopefully, you know, you you mentioned last night in the House Commons, but I think trying to take at least some of the long-term savings out of that kind of ping pong it's used back and forward is is you know one side takes one position so the opposition takes you know almost intri- instinctively takes the opposing position i don't think that necessarily works or, or is the most beneficial situation when we've got you know a, a long term to be looking at and, and i understand politics is not always looking long term but ideally for something like this we would want to look a bit longer term so so i think if we look at an example going on at the moment we've got lifetime allowance abolition going on at the moment so and, I, and i'm not going to make any comments around whether <laughs> i agree with this or not but, but if we just look at the fundamentals of this we, we've got a huge cost going on to the industry at the moment in making what's a very very significant legislative change because it's the lifetime allowance is is through the entirety of our tax system. It's it's everywhere. So if we look at systems, processes, literature, it's everywhere. Lifetime allowance is just all encompassing. So so to remove that is is a very substantial piece of work for for the whole industry. And that will be you know platforms, providers, guts, advisors. It's it's everywhere. So so we're spending a huge amount of money, and we're changing all the terminology. So from a consumer situation that creates uncertainty because we're now speaking to them in a different language and they don't understand our language at the best of times but we're now speaking to them in a different language and it potentially creates complexity because much as there's almost an effort to get to a similar position as to where we are today inevitably a change of this size means some people might be slightly better in some situations people might be slightly worse so, so there might be a requirement for some people to take action or not. And so there's uncertainty there. There's also a massive cost to government in doing this. So, so this is a big legislative change. You know, HMRC are doing 
huge amounts of workshops and having to try and build guidance, which hopefully we might get at some point. So, so if we look at the cost of that, and I, and I wouldn't like to estimate that's a massive, massive cost. And then we're looking at, you know, potential in a year's time of of a, you know, if a new Labour government came in and they go with what they're saying at the moment, which is they would reverse this policy, is we would then spend, you know, another year all that money all over again to, to get Marching back the to, troops and, back and, down the hill again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and you look at this from a consumer point, and forget the money that we spend as an industry. If you look at this from a consumer point of view, that's just nonsensical that, that we spend, you know, potentially two years going around in circles or, as you say, up and down a hill to really make no difference to a consumer's outcome, apart from we've spent a lot of money, which inevitably, inevitably has to, flow back to customer costs at some point to some degree but probably more importantly huge uncertainty hits confidence probably increases the number of scams going on this is the kind of perfect storm that hopefully we could have avoided if there was some sort of independent pensions commission where we could agree that actually do we want a lifetime allowance don't we want a lifetime allowance what would it look like you know who who would maybe benefit from it and we get some sort of overall agreement as opposed to you know as i say what we're going through at the moment yeah no i, I don't disagree with any of that i think there i guess some of labor's thinking around the lifetime allowance was one they wanted to accommodate the sort of wealthy public sector workers particularly doctors and make sure they weren't disincentivized from staying in work. I think that was part of the driving consideration, but it does also become a slightly ideological issue. And I guess any commission, any any forging of a consensus will from time to time necessitate a degree of ideological horse trading, you know. So so parties have to kind of hold their noses a bit and compromise on stuff and find middle ground where given a free hand they might pull in one direction or another. You mentioned the 2017 reforms and, and auto-enrolment. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that even that relatively mild enhancement to auto-enrolment has taken years to get the legislation through, and still we're not in a position to implement it. You know, We need further consultation before we can implement it. So that's probably the, the other side of the general election. And if that's how hard it is to get through a relatively modest augmentation to, to auto-enrolment, then that, that again speaks to the need for a commission. But there's an underlying issue to that that I have to thank the PPI for bringing to my attention, which is that the consensus on which auto-enrolment was first forged, that in a set essence, it just makes sense to shovel everybody into a pension, you know, and... There's almost no downside to that, which was the case 20 years ago. The vast majority of people in certain earnings bands should put money into a pension and will start off at 8% and take it on from there. That's coming under pressure. That's jeopardised now by declining home ownership rates. And the PPI have pointed out that by 2040, the percentage of people who own their own home in retirement will have fallen from, I think it's 78% today to about 61% in 2040. And that starts to become a real problem if you've got millions of homeowners, millions of pensioners, sorry, who are not homeowners in retirement, who might have been on modest incomes in their working lives, who've diverted consumption for today into a long-term savings arrangement through auto-enrollment, you know, impoverished themselves now, 
then we'll only be dependent on welfare and retirement anyway. So, so why did we auto-enroll them in the first place? That's going to be a problem. That, to me, strikes, strikes me as something which a commission should be looking at. Yes, and, and I think absolutely, and absolutely agree. And on the flip side, and I agree with everything you said, the flip side is, should some people be saving more? Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and I think there, there's a good argument that some people should. That's not to say that we should blanket put it up from 8 to 12 or whatever, because there's an argument that the you know, lower earners have got a better things to be spending the money on in, in a simple way, but but also got give we've got reasonable replacement rates. If again if you go back to Turner Commission about, you know, those people now, given where state pensions are now, is that they've actually got decent coverage if if you're earning, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand pounds, you've actually by the time you've got your state pension there, got you you're pretty much above any kind of reasonable level that people would put in force and you don't really need private provision. But but I think those are the kind of issues that a commission would look at to say, are there categories now who should maybe have a lower contribution? Are, are there categories that should have a higher contribution? If there are, how how do we get there? And Because and, none of those things you would be wanting to do immediately or over a one-year, two-year period. Potentially, those are things you'd be wanting to do over a you know, in 10 years' time, we're mm. going to start looking to do this because state pension changes and things have shown us that we need to try and give people probably 10 years' notice of, of substantial change. And that's not necessarily what governments are good at doing, isn't it? Not necessarily looking at 10 years' time because that's not where their focus often is. It's on the next couple of years. So I think it's those long-term decisions that are Key and state pension ages is, an, is, an, is another one, you know, and triple lock, as you mentioned. But going back to your point about the benefits of a commission, things like state pension age, a government deciding to put state pension age up is a di- hugely difficult political situation. And we saw that, we've seen that because we've kind of kicked it into the long grass a little bit, haven't we? We've, whereas if there was an independent commission who says, this is where we think we need to go to and we can get some consensus again that takes risk away to some degree from presenting that to the public to say this is where we think we're going because again doesn't become a one party saying one thing opposite party saying something else it becomes hopefully something we've got general agreement on yeah no agree with that i was i was struck by the current pensions minister's comments around his particular constituency, Blackpool North, and the life expectancy there is a pretty socially deprived area. I think he said healthy life expectancy for men was something like 54. You know, for, for some of the wards in his constituency, actual life expectancy was like low to mid-60s for men. So how is the state pension helping them? I was also struck by some data coming out of the Centre for Policy Studies. I mean, you know, this is not new stuff. It just caught my eye this morning. Well, they say in 1972, there were 4.5 workers per pensioner. Today, it's 3.3 workers per pensioner. And by 2072, which is the kind of time span you need to think over if you're making pensions policy, it'll be 1.9 workers per pensioner. And the shift of state spending towards the NHS and the the state pension and the amount of money we're going to have to take off your and my children, Andy, to, to pay for these pensions becomes becomes hugely problematic. And at the moment, we've kind of solved that one by just saying, oh, well, we'll just push the state pension age up to 67 or 68 or maybe even 69 or 70 in the long term. But 
even that may not fix it in the long term. And it, you know, no, no one's thinking about these things in in those kind of frames at the moment. I, I don't believe so. Apart from some of these independent groups, so you know, so go, go once you mentioned IFS and ILC and all those kind of ones. It feels that those are the ones that are looking over the long term to to try and understand the impact. And, and we've got long-term care is, is the other huh, thing to yeah. go into what, what you've mentioned. So, yeah, so going back to state pension, is is it now doing what it was probably originally brought in to do? Different people would argue different things around that, but but in, a, in some ways the state pension, you could argue, was brought in to, to give a, a kind of minimum income level for those who didn't have sufficient money. If you are continually pushing the state pension age up, there will be a group and including some of those ones Paul may have mentioned, who, who just simply don't get a state pension or get very little out of it. However, the opposite point of view is is what we have at the moment is hugely difficult for the country to afford. So so it's not easy. So, so none of us is a simple answer, because if there was a simple answer, lots of people would have come up with it. And that's probably why you do need lots of clever people in a room who can get other people, you know, a whole variety of evidence and and concepts and, and they can analyze options and you know state pension should it be you know different amounts to different people could you pay it at earlier ages all those kind of things there's a whole bunch of things out there and i'm not saying any of those are right or wrong but somebody probably needs to sit down and have a look at them yeah and a long-term savings commission uh, taking a long view and commissioning research uh, would would be a great body to do that. So there's another one that came up, and I wish I'd this report I wrote for People's Partnership. I wish I'd, I'd gone down this road as well on it, which is the regulatory framework. And I was at a round table yesterday with with a bunch of master trusts, and we were talking about the intersection because this is the kind of lively life I lead. We we're talking about the intersection of. DWP and TPR policy on decumulation and how that fits with where the FCA is going on things like the advice guidance boundary review and targeted support and guidance. And some aspects of occupational pension benefits fall outside the regulated activities order. So pension schemes can just do stuff that FCA regulated firms can't. But we've got a world now where, sorry, this is long-winded, but bear with me, we we will go somewhere with this. DWP is now saying to pension schemes, look, essentially, if people don't know what to do at retirement, you'll just have to shovel them into a default product, right? Just and Which will probably have to be drawdown. And the, the occupational pension sector generally is looking at that going, hang on, not sure this really works for us. You know, we're, This is quite a complicated thing to do to somebody, and it's definitely not going to be an annuity. And can we not just have a conversation about this first? Meanwhile, the FCA is doing things like consumer duty, you know, good customer outcomes. You know, you've got to take responsibility for that. And look, you need to guide people. And so... I guess where this has taken me again, and I think you know, CDC is another example of this where things fall between the cracks between the two regulators. I would love to see, there's been a lot of talk about consolidation of pension schemes and consolidation of small pots. I would love to see consolidation of, of regulators. To me, it's just bonkers that we still have an FCA and a pensions regulator doing two different things in parallel and overlapping with each other. And I think all these policy examples I've touched on are evidence of that. But the problem is, no one wants. There's no momentum to change it. The, the the Treasury doesn't want to change it. The DWP doesn't want to change it. Neither of those regulators will change things themselves. So we're just stuck with this daft regulatory system, and that too, I feel, is something that a long-term savings commission could could look at objectively and say, "Well, you know, maybe maybe we need to reorganise the furniture a little bit here." Yeah. 
and I think it was almost it was this historic concept that goes you know kind of occupational schemes and there was retail pensions and and that's not the world we live in these days isn't it because it's all very gray in between there because you've kind of got you know group sips which are workplace schemes but mm. fall under the FCA and and something that looks almost identical which which then falls under TPR and for an individual being in those two schemes, so again, going back to client point of view, they will effectively notice to them as an individual, it's the same thing. But what they could be presented with and given could be fundamentally different. So so again, even basic things like illustrations, we've got different ways of doing it, which is one of my huge bugbears. You know, illustration is like the best of time. I can waste the time, but I'm not sure I should say things like that. But <laughs> but, anyway, but the concept that some illustrations take inflation into account and some don't, and you give one to a customer one year and it does, and the next year it doesn't, that's just not sensible. It's just not... A and they're all guesses anyway, right? <laughs> well, exactly, which is, goes back to my first point. But yeah, so, so things like that, and because we have two regulators trying to get agreement on things like that, it's just hugely, hugely difficult. So so yes, I, I would absolutely agree with where you're going. And, and a, a dashboard is another one that's come up, you know, so, so connection dates to dashboards, is, and that's going to work differently depending if you're an FCA-regulated scheme or a, or a TPR regulated scheme and again that that doesn't seem to make any great sense does it it's you know if you've got 50 people in your scheme you should connect to the dashboard at the same time I would have got and I don't see why you should you know have six months or however eight months nine months year difference but just because it's a slightly different construct agree I am increasingly optimistic that the dashboards are actually going to happen I mean Paul Maynard said the other week that there was one of his two sort of priorities to focus on. I th- I, he didn't sp- explicitly say so, but I think he was sort of is- implicitly saying this side of the general election. So the other one was getting the value for money framework in place, which, again, coming back to my Master Trust mount- roundtable, quite, quite a few people there were quite sort of sceptical about how effective the VFM framework is actually going to be in its current format. But, by the way, I was encouraged to hear Paul say dashboards yeah definitely want to get that one over the line and and you know it feels it feels like that dashboards are actually getting somewhere close to the line now uh, you know if if nothing else then we can look on that as a success of the last few years can't we okay, once it's delivered we can look on that as a success <laughs> but and i get your point and it seems to be moving in the right direction what you know the reality is we're probably still you know 18 months two years away from anything going live to a customer and, and and that's when it's important, isn't it? And yeah. and it, it's at that point that the key is is the coverage, isn't it? The coverage needs to be decent at that point in time for it to be useful and and therefore successful. Yes, uh, but look, I'd rather know. I'd rather a dashboard that was like you know eighty percent coverage on day one, <laughs> and you know, and then we can you know improve it from there. Just get the thing up and uh, running, MVP kind of approach. Absolutely, absolutely. But but you don't you don't want that bus there with you know with five people on board do you you want that bus that's relatively full before before it's launched yeah so 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 there we are so has has anybody responded to the letters you sent out on the on the on the long-term savings commission has anyone kind of come back and said auntie do you know what other side of the general election we'll be doing that well, no, so not 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 as explicitly as that. No, so so we, we, we've had a whole number of you know acknowledgements, notes of interest. Okay. Uh, we're in the process of arranging one or two meetings at the moment. So, 
you know, these things will never be quick, will it? You know, as in, it was never likely that people are going to just suddenly go, that's fantastic and we'll do this next week. That, that's not the way these yeah. things work, as you know better than I do. So, so, so I guess it's all about creating some debate. We've been pleased with the response. We've also really good feedback from advisors, which which I've found quite interesting. Is we've had uh, lots of advisors very positive about this as a concept. So so hopefully these meetings we have, and hopefully we'll, we'll maybe potentially get some more meetings, is that it will have it on the agenda. And, and obviously we are not the only people talking about this because you've mentioned it, and I'm sure there's other people out there talking about it. But if we can have this on the agenda and have you know, a reasonable debate about whether this is the right way forward, I think that's positive. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, Labour, who might form the next government, you know, they've said they're going to do a review of pensions. Well, OK, it's it's not a big step sideways from for a review of pensions to become a long-term savings commission. So, you know, there's a door, at least a jar there, isn't there? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, one to come back to. Andy, thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening. <laughs>